I'm sure you've never considered adding a coloring book to your bedroom repertoire, but Love and Lust is the adult adult coloring book full of sensual imagery sure to get things heated up. I'm Jessica Van and I help individuals and couples to enhance their sexual experiences through learning to prioritize their pleasure. I'm a licensed therapist and I developed this coloring book as a way to eliminate the shame sometimes associated with sex and increase healthy conversations about true intimacy. Love and Lust is accompanied by the Essential Love and Lust Toolbox, which is online and offers therapeutic exercises sure to spice up things in and out of the bedroom. Head over to EnvisionCounselingLLC.com and get your Love and Lust Toolkit today. From my experience, podcast listeners get 25% off when you use promo code FME. Get your copy of Love and Lust today and add a little color to your sexy. Year, what is going on, everybody? This is your host, Rob, back with another episode of From My Experience Podcast. Y'all already know how I start the show. I want to thank everyone that's a supporter, all of our listeners, whether it be on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, all those wonderful things. Thank everyone in the Facebook group for your continued colorful commentary and discussions. Thank everybody who's been supporting us on Instagram. Thank everyone who's been tuning in to the Instagram Lives to look at my late night foolishness. I'll be bored, so y'all definitely help me out with that. Today, we have a special guest. I told y'all I'm going to have 50 interviews this year. 50, okay? So I have another special guest today. Another fellow Claflinite. Now... <laughs> This was an important interview for me for a couple reasons. And she doesn't know this. She's about to hear this for the first time. It's not crazy. Don't make <laughs> I wish y'all could see her face. You have a, well, this guest has a very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? She has a very extensive journey into education. And what she's trying to do and is doing through education is very noble. And I, I know that this interview is important because, you know, when you scroll through social media, there's quite a bit of people that kind of bash education. They say, oh, college is this and not worth it and blah, blah, blah. And that always strikes a nerve with me because I went to college and I graduated and the connections that I've made and the experiences I have are priceless to me. You know, I've impacted lives and I wouldn't have been able to do that without my formal education. So... This is also someone who I had to hunt down. She was on the list. She's off the list now. I got about 10 more people left. <coughs> but I will say this. While we were in school together, she always carried herself with class, with style, with grace. Her presence was always felt. And she had the most radiant smile I ever saw. All right, enough of that. No, I'm not flirting. Y'all shut up. I know what y'all thinking. So, <laughs> she is a professor at the University of Southern Indiana. Ladies and gentlemen, Miss Xavier Harrington. Hi, everybody. 
thank you for making time for us. How have you <laughs> been? It's only been like two or three years in the making. Yeah. We've only talked about this for like two, two, almost three, maybe four years now. It's it, 2020. It was my, it was my fault because my follow up game is real. Well, it was real trash, but now. <laughs> It's okay. It's it's a big deal now. So I'm happy to be here. I'm happy that, you know, um, I have the free time. I'm happy that I was able to pin it into my schedule and happy that you all could have me. So thank you for having me. No problem. We definitely appreciate your time. So we're going to get right into this. Uh Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I know I saw something. I saw something. Did you say you first, you're first generation? Yeah. I'm a okay. Student. Okay, let's talk about that. You're the only the second person I've had on here that's been a first generation student, and y'all stories are extremely interesting to me because y'all have pioneered something for your entire family. So, right. talk about what that what that was like for you. Okay. Um. So yeah, as as your gracious host has has uh, already said, I'm Xavier Harrington. I'm an Orangeburg native. Um born and raised, I like to say, um, in Orangeburg, South Carolina. And if you know anything about the 803 and um, that part of the Midlands and Orangeburg in general, you know um, how high poverty is in that area, Um, but you also know how important quality education is if you're from that area. So if you're a South Carolina native, I'm sure you remember, um, you know, the Bible Belt and uh, all of those school districts suing the state of South Carolina for educational access, right? And mm-hmm. <laughs> just educational equality, right? Why can't a school in Orangeburg have the same standards and the same um, teaching expectations as a school in, you know, Charleston, uh, as a school in, you know, um, Richland or Lexington? So for me, um, I don't think I knew what first gen was in middle school. Um, I became aware of my first generation status, I would say, uh, around high school. But for me, my dad always worked. Um, I came from a two-parent household. My mother always worked. Um, but the little things that they would say to me made it evident to me that I was first gen. So my father saying to me, you know, I want you to get a good education. I want you to go to school because I don't want you to have to get up, you know, five o'clock in the morning to make your coffee, prepare to go to work. Right. Um, I want you to have a different type of work-life balance. And I don't think my parents knew what work-life balance was in the 90s, but those were the things that my dad would say to me. You know, I want you to focus on your education. That's the only thing that's going to um, set you apart from the lifestyle that I had to live. And again, these are people who grew up in South Carolina during, you know, brutal times of segregation and then had to endure integration. And I say endure integration because in South Carolina, integration was just as hard on the black students as it was on the white students who didn't want it. So, you know, they endured integration. And then for my dad, who had never been to college, you know, who only had um, his um, high school education to say to me almost every day, your job is to be a student. Your job is to go, you know, further than I went. To me, it was important. Um, I just remember telling my parents at a young age, like, you know, I want to I wanna make you proud. I don't want to... Um, ever do anything that makes you question, you know, why do we have you? Like, you are this. Like, <laughs> you know, all those nights spent talking to you and reading books to you, you can't even, you know, write a sentence. Like, you just, 
we are just so embarrassed to be your parents. So I would always say to them, you know, I just want you to be proud of me. And once I learned that I was a first generation student, I mean, my goals were always to go to college. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up watching different worlds. So I knew hey. sort of inherent, yeah, inherently that I was going to go to an HBCU. Um, and it just so happened that that whole journey of being a first generation student, I don't think I ever realized how important mentors were. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't think I ever realized how important um, having strong teachers who understood me being a dark skinned black girl from the country, you know, needing to, you know, ask you a question or two more than my other colleagues. Right. Um, all of those things became apparent once I got in high school because I went from, you know, going to, um, a school like Felton Laboratory that was predominantly black and we had professors and, (laughs) you know, we had professors teaching us. We had teachers who had won, you know, national awards teaching us K through eight. Wow. So then we Felton uh, Laboratory School and then have to go to a public high school where the demographic was completely different. And I was one of, you know, two black kids in an honors class. That was hard. So that's why I always tell people I learned I was first gen in high school because my, you know, my teachers who were college professors and community college instructors, they never, you know, talked to us in those terms like, oh, yeah, you're black. So you're going to have to struggle. Oh, yeah, you're first gen. So you're going to have to struggle. It was my expectations are high for you. And I know you can meet these expectations. So we never even considered it. Right. Everyone's Mm -hmm. black. Everyone's thriving. We had three or four students who weren't black, right? So I'm thinking white, Asian, American, et cetera. But to then be put in a public school setting in a rural part of Orangeburg where I'm, you know, sometimes one of two or one of three black students in an AP or an honors classroom, Hmm. that was completely different for me. So that's when I realized I have to ask for help. I have to have mentors because I'm now in situations that my parents can't help me with. You know, as soon as I transitioned into high school, my parents' abilities to help me just sort of stopped. So what do I do? Do I fight and recreate the wheel and become frustrated with the educational system? Or do I learn what it means to be first gen and find allies and people who are willing to help me through? And that's really how I made it. That's how I made it to Claflin. That's how I made it through Claflin. That's how I made it into my master's program. And that's literally how I'm making it through this PhD program. So, wow, you you took first gen to the maximum. <laughs> the maximum. <laughs> I'm going to get all the schooling. She said she's going to get it all. Wow. So based off of what you just said, first of all, that's an amazing story. Are you writing a book? People ask me that all the time. I, I don't have the brain cells for that right now, but it's something I would love to do down the line. I just finishing this dissertation takes so much work there are nights where i am up on the couch one two three in the morning people have been asleep six hours by then i'm up Uh. with another cup of coffee trying to bang out this dissertation and you know if i were only doing it for myself i would have given up a long time ago Mm. you know but i have to do it for you know the kids who may not be in orangeburg right now but who grew up the way i grew up yeah. who are like, yeah, I want to be a professor one day too. Yeah, I want to be an educator one day too. It's like, well, I can't give up because then you won't you won't see the path. I can only show you the path if I take it first. So I'm trying. I'm tr- like crawling. <laughs> Craw- no, you you <laughs> like speeding. Like when I was just reading like everything you sent me, you know, in your job forms, I'm just like, oh. 
<laughs> like I would see no, stuff here and there on Facebook, but I was like, oh, see, I don't, I didn't, I've never had the capacity for just being at school. I never, never just academics just wasn't my thing. I was good at it, you know. I did okay. Um, I was a A B student. C sometimes when I wasn't applying myself. Um, I have regrets, but <laughs> I really applaud people like you who continue to push and really achieve those high academic standards because it just takes another level of maturity, dedication, and focus. Cause it's not easy. It's not like you just wake up and you get A's. Like you're sacrificing a lot of the fun and entertainment that goes into being a college student and some of that social life too. Because I, I realized that after I graduated and I would share stories with people and they was like, no, I was probably doing homework. No, I was, and I was like, dang. No wonder you make six figures. <laughs> <laughs> and, and see, that's a part of it. You know, once you realize, like, you know, I have um, I have this passion for helping students, right? I want to make sure that I get into these doors and into these rooms and sit at these tables so that the people who will never make it into these buildings have a voice. And, you know, I don't want to sound like a martyr. I'm not sacrificing my, you know, young adulthood mm -hmm. so that these other little black kids and brown kids, Asian kids, biracial kids can have a voice. But in some ways, it's true, right? You you yeah. sacrifice your free time. You sacrifice going out. You sacrifice homecomings <laughs> to, yeah. to do what's necessary because, you know, you know, after this phase of life is done I will be able to benefit others right because again if it was truly for me I would have given up after Claflin like I don't <laughs> I don't need anymore I learned a lot uh during my time at Claflin but you know the educational system is set up in such a way that I can't really advocate for poor kids for kids of color um for kids with diverse abilities um with a bachelor's degree in the ways that I can advocate with the PhD so that's why I'm doing it so talk about your bachelor's. Why did you choose the field that you chose? English education. I don't know what TESOL uh, is. Yes. Yeah. So um, I I think I realized around middle school that I was a really good writer, which is why when people like you and other people comment, oh, you know, are you writing a book? I just laugh because I've heard it so long yeah. um, that one day I probably will. But even on like my Facebook post, people comment, when are you writing a book? And I'm like, it's just just a few paragraphs I threw together. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, but I think I realized in middle school that I was a good writer because I would tutor my classmates. Like, I would help them on their oh, wow. essays. Um, like, ed not editing, so to speak, because I don't think I knew all the basics then, but I knew what a strong sentence was and what it was not. Um, so I realized then I wanted to be an English professor. And um, in high school, one of my closest mentors, um, uh, Dr. Smith, um, an, an elderly white woman with short gray hair said to me my freshman year of, uh, of, um, of high school, you know, Xavier, you're a great writer and you should think about being that English professor. I know you've been going back and forth with whether you want to be an English teacher or an English professor. She's like, you could definitely do it. And that's sort of the push I needed. Um, I think I was allowing society to tell me, you know, little black girls from Orangeburg don't go on to become professors. Mm -hmm. So, and I had heard that so many times that I'd stopped telling people that's what I wanted to do. So to hear that from, um, from someone I looked up to, I felt that was like the motivation I needed. So I decided, okay, if I'm going to be the English professor, I have to learn grammar. I have to learn sentence structure. I have, I have to, because again, I'm going to be put in spaces in classrooms where students are going to question my ability. They're yeah. going to question my experience. They're going to question if I know what I'm talking about. So 
um, from high school on. I, I took all the English classes. I sat in the front. I asked all the questions. Mm. I, I wanted all the worksheets. You know, I wanted to push myself. Um, and then, of course, when it came time to apply for college, I, you know, designated my major um, and, and minor. Um, Claflin had it so that I could, you know, sort of do both at the same time. I was like, this is perfect. And I went in head first, right? English education is what I want to do. I want to teach kids how to become better writers. And I think what I realized my freshman year at Claflin, which is where the TESOL part comes in, is that we were then in 2006 using English and how kids assimilate into writing into formal academic language to keep kids from doing well in school. Mm. It was like a barrier. So remember we were talking about like African-American vernacular and yep. Ebonics, yep. right? And teachers were using that to keep kids from advancing to the next grade level. And I was like, this is ridiculous to me. Everybody code switches. Yes. Right? I'm from Orangeburg. The way that I talk to my friends, hey, Bo, what's up, man? You know, that's how we talk. And right. We've been talking that way since birth. I don't then go into my classroom with my professors and say, yeah, nah, Bo, that ain't gonna work for me. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> yeah. not, to me, that was obvious so when I set out I was like okay I'm gonna be the best English professor I can be and in order to be a great English professor I have to learn so I took the classes uh, I had some professors who were hard on me um, really me, yes who you know said you know if you really want to be an English professor essentially my English professors if you want to be this you're gonna have to work hard so they would push me and I would have to go to their office and they would quiz me I mean it was oh I snap asked for it. Okay. yeah I asked for it so I learned a lot, you know, and it, it made me strong so that um, by sophomore year, I said, you know what, I don't want to just teach English to the poor kids and the kids of color who really need to learn English to be able to advance. I want to also teach it to the kids who are immigrants, whose first language isn't English. Right? How do I how do I teach English to someone who does not speak English? And uh, it was Dr. Matali Wong. Uh, uh, who said to me, and she was an English professor at the time, she said, Xavier, if you can teach English to someone whose native tongue is not English, then you know you good. <laughs> right. That, <laughs> yeah. So that's what I did. Uh, so I started working in the writing center at Claflin. Um, um, uh, the education department at Claflin had this beautiful partnership with uh, the school district where I was able to go into these kids' homes with their parents, right? These kids don't speak English. Right. And I'm in their homes during the summer and during the school year teaching them English. And it was a great learning experience. Like, that's why I tell people, you know, people who have never had an HBCU experience, specifically a Claflin experience, I can't explain to you what Claflin gave me that I know other schools couldn't have been able to give me, but I can explain to you through, through where I am today, right? Yes. And what I know. Today. And I know the things that I know today because of that Claflin experience and how invested those professors were in me. My English professors didn't have to, you know, set up meetings with me in, in their office to make sure I knew what a modifier was. They didn't have to set up right. meetings to make sure I understood the importance of prepositions. They didn't have to set up meetings to make sure I knew how to teach student sentence structures, but they did because I shared with them I wanted to be an English professor. Um, and they knew as a dark-skinned black woman, they're going to push you and they're going to want to know how much you know. So I'm going to quiz you and you're going to get good at this. And I really appreciated it. I really did. You you just said something there. That Claflin experience is just, it's another level, man. Like I... Y'all don't understand. Panther pride is real. Like this is you talk to any Claflinite and you'll you'll get the same thing. Like it was it was like a second home. 
like the professors you respected them but they would slap you upside the head sometimes and be like not not literally but <laughs> people like to sue i'm joking y'all but they would really pull you to the side and give you a talking to like they cared they cared you know they really wanted to see you do well if you're missing class if you're partying too late you're showing up late you look tired like they had a vested interest in you and they would ha give you a great talking to i remember some of those meetings that i've had some of those talking to's I got because I would get off track and not do what I'm supposed to do. And that really helped me. It helped me become a better mentor to some of, you know, my friends and some of my young fraternity brothers and stuff like that when I have conversations with them because I can see that in them, like how I was and then, you know, taking that experience mm -hmm. and putting that on them. But this ain't about me. So you did all of this hard work, amazing work at Claflin. Mm-hmm. And then what happened after graduation? Uh, yeah, it's a crazy story. So uh -oh. we we were enjoying junior year. Um, you know, I took taking the GRE, uh, took the praxis, passed. You know, got Ugh. my certification. I'm ready. That P <laughs> ready word. To, ready to go. And my mom suffered a stroke. Oh. And my dad was devastated. Like he was devastated. He didn't know whether he was coming or going. You know. He was like, I don't, like, do I work extra shifts now to take care of the household bills? Like, you know, um, what do I do to ensure that when my wife gets better, because he's a man of great faith, I know she's going to get better, but what do I do to ensure that when my wife gets better, she's able to come back to our home and we don't have more debt, right? So there were a few months there, junior year, right before senior year, I was like, I'm going to take a year off. I'm going to work. Uh, I'm going to help my dad um, pay for my mom's. Uh, therapy that she was going to need. She was going to need extensive therapy. She couldn't speak or walk or anything. Mm -hmm. um, and there were several weeks there where I was really debating, like I'm, I'm going to take, I'm going to take a year or a year and a half away. And again, and not to toot, you know, Claflin's horn, but it was um, Mrs. Alice Carson Tisdale. It, it was my professors. It, it, you know, it, it was my advisor um, who reached out to me and said, Xavier, you, you weren't in class this week. What's going on? This isn't like you. You sit in the front. You're, you know, studious. You're trying your best to take advantage of the time you have here at Claflin. Why aren't you showing up? And it wasn't until I sat down with Mrs. Tisdale and explained to her, you know, that my mother is at MUSC right now. She's been in a coma for a few weeks. And, you know, we don't know what's, what's going on. My dad is, um, you know, really despondent. He's really not talking. I know it's hurting him because he's used to having his wife. Um, you know, what do I do? It was then that she said to me, you're not going to drop out of school. Like, you're going to stay in school and we're going to figure this out. And she said to me, you know, you're driving back and forth to Charleston after class. You're getting back late in the morning. She's like, Xavier, that's not safe. You know, you were, you know, you're, you're getting on the road late. You're staying with your mom's. I, I would sleep uh, at my mom's bedside mm -hmm. um, and my homework and all of that. Um, and again, she's in a coma, so she doesn't know I'm there, but the nurses would bring me, you know, blankets, they would bring me water, you know, whatever I need. I would do my homework at her bedside, fall asleep. They would never kick me out. Thank God. Um, I would wake up the next morning, give her a kiss goodbye. Again, she doesn't recollect any of this. Um, I would fold up the blanket. I would thank the nurses. I would drive back to Claflin, shower, dress in the dorm and head, head back out. Right. Like wow. it was, I did that for several several weeks my mother was in a coma for almost three months <sighs> so it was mrs tisdale saying to me you know whatever we have to do so that you're not missing that eight nine and ten o'clock 
class because you're literally driving back from Charleston, we will do. She said, but I don't want you to drop out of school. And that's not, that's not even an option for you. And again, I was a junior, right? I right. You know, had an academic record. It wasn't that I was a bad student or, you know, I didn't care about my education. It was literally that life happened. And when you're a first generation student, when life happens like that and yeah. you're on a campus, a beautiful campus in a beautiful dorm, you got your own bathroom, you're eating all this good food in the calf, you feel bad for choosing your education over your family when they need you. Yep. And in that moment, my mom was sick. My dad was depressed. My dad was overworking himself, trying to make ends meet. And here I am on Claflin's campus, hanging out with my line sisters, you know, yeah. eating in the calf three times a day. We're chilling on the yard. We're laughing and mucking it up. And my mom's sick. So it's that weird pull that yep. first-gen students have when anything happens back at home and I'm living this very privileged life in college. Um, so for me, I had that struggle for about three months, and it was the first lady of Claflin who said to me, that's not an option for you. We're going to find some way to make that 8, 9, and 10 o'clock class that I normally had no issues going to work out. So that summer, my mother got better. Thank God. Thank God. And able to work and help my dad out and help make ends meet and all of that and it just worked out where that summer gave me the time that I needed because I had already taken my GRE and I had already taken the praxis it didn't affect me much there and then senior year was just it was just a blessed year for me I just I enjoyed it I enjoyed hanging out with my friends I enjoyed being back on that campus again because it was my mother was good my dad was good life was good so I applied for grad school um, I really wanted to go to Auburn because Auburn was offering a master's and a PhD together in um, composition and rhetoric. Oh. So all of my English professors told me at Claflin, if you want to really get down to the, the nuts and bolts of writing and you want to be the person to help poor kids and students of color really learn academic writing, you need to t be a compositionist. You need to learn rhetoric. You need to learn how sentences are formed. You need to learn how to form sentences so that people know when you're mad <laughs> and <people laughs> when you're happy. And I'm like, wow, this is so interesting, right? I think I had taken like one rhetoric class at Claflin, which is customary for college. But when you want to be a rhetorician and really have a way with words, that rhetoric and composition degree is the only way to go. And at the time, Auburn was one of the only schools in the South that offered a master's and a PhD in it. Jeez. Now, again, I had never been to Auburn. I had only ever been an Auburn fan, you know, SEC football, right. <laughs> like everybody else in South Carolina. You know, everyone down south watches football. So I'd always been an Auburn fan, but I had never been to Auburn or walked on those planes to know what that was like. So I applied. I got a letter saying, congratulations, Xavier. You've been accepted on a full academic scholarship. And all I could do is break that. All I, that's all I remember. I remember getting on my knees. I remember crying. I remember thanking God and praising God because, again, <laughs> and I can't stress this enough, Coming from Orangeburg, South Carolina, where I come from, knowing the level of poverty, knowing mm. the way that many people look at us because we are from Orangeburg, South Carolina. This isn't Charleston. This isn't Columbia. Mm -hmm. This isn't, you know, this ain't West Ashley. This is Orangeburg. So for me to get a full academic ride at that school, knowing their academic uh, expectations, I was floored. So... Before, you know, I could really get the letter open good, I was like, I'm going to Auburn. So I, you know, I had already planned out. I don't have to work tomorrow. I'm driving down to Alabama. You know, I'm going to 
I just wanted to see it. I had never been. So um, it was a, a Friday. I had already planned it. Um, and I drove down to Alabama and checked it out. This is before Airbnb, you know, stayed at a little crummy hotel. <laughs> I told like three of my LSs I was going because I didn't want them to be scared. Right. They were going to be like, girl, Alabama? You going by a, yourself? That's a long drive. I made oh, that trip with my line brothers. By yourself. Right on a Friday. Well, how long are you gonna be gone? You know, but I told three of them because I wanted them to know something happened. I didn't tell my parents. I just wanted to go and see. Like I want to see. You know, if this is where I'm gonna spend the next, you know, two to four years of my life. I want to see what this place is like. And I went down there and I fell in love with it. Um, I signed up for a campus tour. I stayed at a little crummy hotel again. I'm a college senior. I don't have no money like that. Stayed right. at a little crummy hotel. Thank God I was safe. Next morning, got up, ate my little continental breakfast, and came back to Claflin to enjoy graduation and the finality of senior year. But I literally got to Auburn on all those prayers of my mom, my grandma, and my dad. I know that to be a fact because if it wasn't for Mrs. Tisdale, I wouldn't have even graduated from Claflin, let alone made it to Auburn. You, I gotta catch my breath. Hold up. <laughs> it's just my life. It's just, just every day. It's just my life. Don't be overwhelmed. I, I am because... I have similar experience. Mrs. Tisdale, I like to say, saved my life. Um, my freshman year, you know, we just at White Oak. Did you go to White Oak? You went to White yeah. Oak. Yeah. 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 We just, she, when her and Mr. Tisdale, President Tisdale, just had a conversation with me because they saw I was down, kid from Philadelphia. I had to leave everything. No friends. My family was right there in Charleston, but I'm like, I'm starting my life over again. Hey. Never let us forget that you were from Philly. Never. You never <laughs> allowed us to forget that this is this is very weird for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was a different person. <clears throat> but I, it just goes back to what I said earlier about that love and about them caring. Like, I'll never forget what she said to me after we, our conversation. She said, you'll be okay. You're home now. And, you know, I, when I went through what I went through, I did take time off from school, but I came back because I was so close to finishing and I knew I was going to have the support that I needed. But wow, you're okay. So you're definitely writing a book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, wow. I'm sorry. I'm really absorbing everything you just said. That's a lot. And you're just it taking, a lot. you're taking all this stuff on and I just, I couldn't imagine having those feelings and that pressure of exactly what you just said. Like you're you're basically living in the lap of luxury. Like everything is good at school, literally. But everything yeah. at home isn't good, and you're being torn. I don't know if y'all listeners have ever been torn like that, where you feel like this is my destiny over here, but this is like my foundation over here, which I got to choose. Like, and sometimes you don't have to choose. Sometimes things end up working out. Thank God they worked out for you. Um, yeah, well, I imagine didn't making you... that decision at 19. You know, it, it's, yeah. it's, it's, heavy. it's heavy. That's but... the other thing. Yeah, you're super young. Oh, yeah. I think I, I, think I was 19 because I came to Claflin at 17. So I was 19, about to be 20. It was, it was a lot. It was a lot to take in. But, you know grace of God one of it was one of those grace of God moments one of those destiny moments as you just said I feel like it worked out she stepped in when she was supposed to because you know there were times I would drive down um the interstate 
crying, mm-hmm. you know, trying to make it back to Claflin because I'm torn. You know, I have this education. I have to go to class. And I'm not going to make it to this 8 o'clock. I'm not going to make it to this 9 o'clock. I'm not going to make it to this 10 o'clock because now that I'm here, I don't want to leave my mom. Right. Right. And then I'm driving down the interstate crying. Plenty of times I could have been in an accident. You know, yeah. to this day, there, you know, there's some some trips down that road. I can't even tell you how I got from Orangeburg to Charleston to MUSC to see my mom by the grace I made it there safely. I stayed the night. Nurses, by the grace, never kicked me out because I wouldn't have had any place to go in the area, right, to mm-hmm. come back and see my mom in the morning. By the grace, they would bring me a blanket and a little fruit cup that they snuck out the calf. By the grace, <laughs> they would let me do my homework beside my mom. By the grace, I would get up and fold my blanket and sneak out the side door. By the grace, I never got kicked out. Three months of that. Well, you had to so, sneak out the side door. You could oh. Because I wasn't supposed to be there. Remember, oh. you have visitation hours, so visitors are supposed to leave at a certain time. Um, but I think the nurses realize that, you know, she's driving up from Orangeburg to be with her mom. Um, you know, we can't kick her out. So those are things I, you know, I don't share, um, to make people feel sorry for me. I share to make people believe in, you know, what's for you is for you. Yes. And if you fight for it, um, all the things that are supposed to come to you will come to you in due time. Ooh, I like that. I like that. So you made a random trip to Auburn. You loved yep. it, obviously. Loved it. Never told anybody I was going. Like three of my line sisters knew, and it was a super, super secret. I swore them the secrecy. All right. So what was this educational journey like once you got to Auburn? Oh, my gosh. So <laughs> coming from Claflin, um, where everyone knows everyone, and even the international students, right? Right. Come to Claflin and make it their home and find kinship and family. Auburn was so big that for the first few months, if I'm being honest, I just felt like a fish out of water. Like I knew academically I could hang. Mm -hmm. I knew socially, you know, I can have the conversations. I can get to know anybody, right? But it was something weird about being in that space where nobody cared. (laughs) Nobody cared about that. It was about, um, you know, you're a graduate student now. You know, there are no social activities for you. There are no activities for you to get to know people. There are no student support services for you. There are no advisors. There are no, right? So I went back oh. to being a first-gen student again. So now I'm a first-gen student. There are no advisors. There, There is no place for me to go and get advice. Right. Damn. I, I don't have a master's degree. My parents don't have a master's Who? <laughs> who's talking to whom? So I'm going around campus like, are there resources for graduate students? Like, how, how do I know what next steps to take right and there was nothing right you have the alumni association but guess what that's for alumni (laughs) you're a student um black student union uh is there but it's predominantly run by undergraduates who have undergraduate issues you're a grad student you're supposed to be self-reliant you're supposed Mm -hmm. to be good but still i'm a first generation student and i needed that mentorship i needed that push to show me what to do. What are the expectations now in this next level? And I, I had no clue. So I went back to Old Faithful, which were books and trying to find some allies. Okay, well, who can be my allies? Who can be my mentors? Thank God I had a great cohort. Mm-hmm. Uh, my classmates at Auburn were great. They would invite me over for dinner. We would hang out outside of class. They actually took the time to get to know me. That made a huge difference. But if I'm being honest, those first few weeks were really hard for me. And, you know, I'm in an apartment all by myself. I'm in a new state. I don't know any of these people. These professors don't know me. They don't have to go out of their way to help me. 
Um, and I'm, you know, just signed up for a master's PhD program, which could take anywhere from two to four years. So they're going to be here for a while. Going to be here for a while. So you better <laughs> get to liking it. So I made some great friends. Um, uh, some other uh, women of color in the area just really loved on me and started treating me more like family than a friend. And they would invite me to their family functions and cookouts. And that is when I began to sort of get my stride. Like, okay, I can create that family atmosphere that I love from Claflin in this new foreign land. I can create it. They ain't going to be the same, mm-hmm. but I can create that sense of family and that sense of um, kinship that I was lacking because again I'm living by myself I don't know these people right there is no way for me to become familiar really um I learned a lot and I I went back to what I know sitting in the front of the class asking the hard questions you know again I was the only um black student or one of two black students in a classroom so I had to go back to high school and remember what worked then I would, you know, go to professor's office hours. I was asking all the hard questions. Whenever conversations of race or ethnicity came up, I, you know, was always the advocate that was on the side of the devil. What about this? Yeah. <laughs> what about that? Um, I was very cautious not to be a token, you know, yeah. and not to, you know, be a, a yes woman and just smile and nod when people said racist or prejudice or bigoted stuff to make people stand behind the things that they said and, um, it wasn't argumentative. It was more so, you know, if you're going to be somebody's professor, you know, I want to make sure you know what you just said. And I want to make sure you, you can make sense of what you just said. I read lots and I, you know, began going to my chair at the time. He was the chair of the English department, uh, Dr. Villanueva. Um, and I would just sign up for weekly office hours. And I, you know, at the time, wow. I didn't think it was bothering him. I thought of it more so as I need a mentor. I need somebody to tell me what these academic expectations are because no one in my family has been, no one in my immediate family has been in a master's program, a master's PhD program. So I need someone who can hold my feet to the fire and say, no, ma'am, that, that's not how you do that. Right. Extra accountability. So I, right. And I was used to that at Claflin. And again, I didn't have that. So I would set up weekly office hours and I would just ask some questions and, you know, here are the things I'm thinking about. And does this make sense? And here's what we're reading in so-and-so's class. And here's what I took from that reading. And do you have any other readings I should be reading? You know, yeah. and he pushed me, he gave me stacks of articles and he would email me links, but he would also talk to me like a scholar. He didn't talk to me like, um, oh, you're just somebody who is interested in it, but you're never going to accomplish it. It was, I see you making strides for others in the educational field. So I'm really going to give you access to all these things. I'm going to give you access to these readings. I'm going to show you about these theories. I'm going to show you all the things that I know. And that man, um, you know, if I would add up all the time that he spent talking to me in his office, (laughs) (laughs) years, 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 years. So, you know, I got ready to graduate and he was one of the first people who was, you know, ecstatic to write me a letter of recommendation for my first, um, you know, real teaching job. Of course, I taught at Auburn, Mm -hmm. um, but he was one of the first people who was like, I'll I'll write it for you. You're you're good. You're ready. I'll write it. And he has been writing letters of recommendation on on my behalf ever since. Yo, first of all, that is awesome, excellent, wonderful. I want to highlight something about your journey that you just said that a lot of people including myself, I used to have an issue with this, but I don't anymore. And it's something you did. And I wish I would have done a long time ago. Yo, you can't be afraid to seek out 
what you need. It's not going to fall out of the sky. It's people not always just going to walk up to you and help you. Like you got to go talk to people. You have to be uncomfortable. You're going to have to sacrifice some time, some effort, the energy to show someone, Hey, I'm here. I need you. What's up? What can you give me a little bit of, okay. And then once someone sees that you're truly invested, they will pour into you. Most people who are accomplished, they want a mentee or someone to pass all of that information along. If not their kids, someone to pass that information along. Cause I have a mentor. My real estate mentor did that with me. I told him, I was like, I want to know everything there is to know about real estate. Boy, why did I say that? <laughs> and he took me under his wing and he was like, all right, let's go, let's go. And every time I tried to get slack or lazy, well, aren't, aren't you the one that said you wanted to know everything? Dang, got to put down the, put down the Xbox controller, get up, go, you know, <laughs> ride right. all around the low country. So, and it's especially tough for you because you are nav literally navigating uncharted territory. You have no one you can pick up and call and talk to about this. Like you are literally in the dark with a flashlight with 10% battery. <laughs> mm -hmm. So in, I, in a new land, a place you've never been, you don't yeah. have anybody who's ever gone to that school. So you can't say, Hey, do you know somebody in financial aid? Hey, do you know somebody Ooh. in the library? Hey, mm. do you know somebody in the writing center? You know, when you have that, that, uh, legacy status, there's a lot of privilege that comes along with being a legacy. Yes. I can call auntie, uncle, mom, dad, and say, Hey, don't you know so-and-so who works in the library? You think you can finagle these $200 library fines I got? But when you are the first, <laughs> you calling yourself. You can pick up the phone and look at yourself and put the phone back down. And you're going to try to figure it out. But yeah, yeah you're right. You can't be you. afraid to ask because, you know, in those situations, again, the first few weeks of being in Auburn, completely different culture in Alabama, um, at the height of Auburn football championship uh, history, those people weren't thinking about me. Right. You know, it it was it's Auburn. You're here. You made it. You know how to navigate. And it's like, oh, but little do you know, I'm first gen. So I know how to, you know, read these books and write these essays and have intelligent conversations. But navigating this academic environment is is different. It's different when you're the first. Oof. So before I get to where you are today in your educational journey. Uh oh. Okay. Let's talk about, no, I want to talk about your professional experience. So you said you taught. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what level did you teach at and what was that like for you? Yeah. So before leaving uh, Orangeburg, I was able to teach high school English. I enjoyed that. Um, okay. It was fun, man. It was fun. You know, I was doing things like making Shakespeare cool. So how do you teach Othello, you know, to 11th grade kids at Orangeburg Wilkinson? Like, those were the things that were interesting to me. Um, and then after my time um, teaching in Orangeburg, um, of course, taught at Auburn as a part of my degree. I was supposed to be there for the master's through the Ph.D., and I, I just decided, mm -mm, I'm going to get this master's, and I'm going to leave. Mm -hmm. And um, my teaching experiences there were great, but again, I had several students uh, who loved me, who nominated me for teaching awards, and then as my professors told me, you know, you're going to come across that student who's going to think, I know more than you, little black girl. And oh. that's exactly what happened. I came across those students who um, would make uh, derogatory statements in class. Um, what? You know, question my my um, my intelligence. If I were to say something to if, or answer a student's question, they would try to follow up and answer it in a different way as though they were the professor and they knew more. Um, 
I had students who um, would say things to me like, you know, well, you asked for, you know, a five page argumentative paper. And I just I think that's too much. I think that's outside of the expectations of the course, at which point I would sit them down and say, would you ever question a white male professor on how many pages he asked you to write mm. for an argumentative writing class? And for me, those were all opportunities for me to really develop that that muscle. Right. Yeah. To develop the strength to say, you're not going to check me on what I know. What I know is what I know. I've been built for this. My professors at Claflin prepared me for this. I know you thought you were going to come in here today and make the little black girl, you know, the black professor cry. That's not me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it was always a beautiful experience and a wonderful time. But there was always this one. Right. There's always this one who wants to put you in your place. Right. Yeah. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm stronger than you. I'm, I'm apt. Right. Yeah. I'm more American than you. I'm smarter than you. And it's like, I, I'm just the professor. <laughs> I'm just here to teach you. Um, I'm not here to have political debates with you. I'm not here to debate why I believe in equality for all people, despite race or sexual orientation or nationality. I'm not here to debate that with you, sir, madam. Uh, what I am here to do is to teach you this good English so that you can be able to write um, and articulate yourself um, and, and move about the country, right? This isn't a place for us to have political debate. So once I had those experiences, I would often laugh because those are the things my professors at Claflin told me I would experience. Um, but it prepared me to be able to, to hold my weight and to stand on my own in a classroom where there are no other allies to back me up. It's just me and a class of 25 kids. How do you navigate the biases that come along with now you being black, you being a dark-skinned black woman, you being a woman, you being a Christian, you being from a different state, you being a HBCU grad, because there were some of those students like, where'd you go to school? Yeah. And then you being considered inferior to a kid who literally just graduated from high school two months ago and I'm sitting here a few weeks away from having a master's degree. Like where in your mind do you think I'm not qualified to be your professor? So tons of biases, uh, you know, in wow. that experience. But I learned a lot and it made me love Auburn because, you know, anytime I would report and I was able to hold my own, I never had to really um, ask, you know, public safety or somebody to get me out of a, a situation with the student. But anytime I would report, um, disrespectful students or prejudice or, you know, anything like that, my chair had my back. My chair knew my goal was to teach my students. He knew my goal was never to be rude to students or biased to students. So when I reported to him, it was no question. Okay, well, we're going to keep a lookout for that student. We're going to make sure that student, um, you know, doesn't continue to harass you in the classroom. You know, we're going to let that student know, hey, if you want to take another class, with another professor, you can, but we think you could learn a lot from that black professor. So, <laughs> interesting. I learned a, a whole lot, a whole lot. Wow, you have a ton of patience. Yes, I do. You do. I could just, I could imagine. I, mm, 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 because I, you know, me be teaching on the elementary level, I've gotten it from them. I'm like, yep. bro, you was. <laughs> Never mind. I can't even say what I want to say. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, like <laughs> not arguing. Yeah. We're not having a conversation. Imagine me looking at a student who's, you know, 18. I am a few weeks away from having a master's degree. Okay. You're 18. You just graduated from high school, public high school in Alabama. And you're trying to have an ideological, intelligent debate with me in the middle of English class. Like, this is not, sir, this is not, this is not it. <laughs> this is not, not what we're doing today. That is not what they want. Okay. So. 
Wow, that is some experience. You definitely need to write a book. I'm going to keep saying that. <clears throat> so, now, let's talk about you and this education. So, let's talk about where you are now today. Okay. Yeah, so, um, after I moved to uh, Indiana, I decided to shift focus from English education, which, again, were my bachelor's and really my master's, um, which is why I decided not to get the PhD in English rhetoric and composition from Auburn to just get the master's and leave, because all of my conversations with my chair um, at Auburn were about social justice and issues of diversity in education and how are we treating the poor kids in the classroom? How are we treating the students of color in the classroom? How are we treating the students with diverse abilities in the classroom? Are we giving them the same opportunities to be successful as the other students, mm. right? And all of my conversations were about that. And all of my research papers were about how do I help poor kids write better? How do I help black students get over the Ebonics, the AAVE hump? Because again, you know, back then it was a huge debate. Can black students assimilate into the formal writing structures? Um, how do I help, you know, uh, students who are not originally from this country really learn how to utilize English to, you know, benefit themselves and benefit their families, right? So all of my conversations were about that. And I just came to this realization that I'm not supposed to be getting a PhD in English. I'm not supposed to be getting a PhD in English education. I'm supposed to be getting a PhD in social justice, change issues of diversity in educational settings. I'm supposed to be finding out ways to make education more equitable for students. I don't care about the institutional success. I don't care about how much money these schools are making off of these kids' backs. I care about the kids being able to get into the schools matriculate uh, successfully and then uh, of course graduate so i sought out you know what are the schools that offer social justice and issues of diversity in education um there were two in my immediate area i applied to bellarmine university which is a small um, uh, catholic leaning institution in louisville kentucky um, and i realized really quickly that that was going to be a two-hour drive Ooh. and i said eh, i've been through worse <laughs> So uh, I, uh, I applied, um, I had to write a, uh, an essay to get in. You had to include writing statements and how appropriate is it for the former English education major that you want to see my writing. I got tons of essays, tons. you know, what you want, you want A, you want B. Um, so I just, you know, went through uh, my Rolodex and found some of my best writing and attached that to my, um, my application. I had to, again, write about why I was pursuing a PhD in issues of diversity in education, and I submitted her. And of course, you know, I submitted it with like bated breath, like, okay, I wonder if I'm going to get in. I wonder if this is where it ends, you know? Mm -hmm. I wonder if this is, because again, as a first-gen student, you still have that imposter syndrome, like, have I just skated through? And it's sad to say Aww, all of the you hurdles, of course, even all of the hurdles that I had to jump to get to that point, I still, in submitting that application, wow. thought, like most first gens do, is this where it stops? Are they going to see me as capable? Are they going to see me as um, worthy of this opportunity for this education? Really? Because again, you're the gatekeeper. You can yeah. say no and that's it for me. Now I have to go somewhere else and see if they'll say yes. And if they say no, then you, know, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So I was nervous. Um, so I applied and of course you had to wait. Then I heard back and they were like, okay, there's an interview process. You have gone through the first round of it. You now need to come in for your interview. And I'm like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> they need to see you. 
Yeah, I was like, all right, uh, I can talk to anybody. Okay, when, where? They're like, well, interviews are only being held on this date at this time. We would love to see you. Let us know when you're going to be available. And I'm like, okay, that's a two-hour drive. Not only is it a two-hour drive from where I live, but it's a different time zone. Um, I'm, you know, got to be cognizant of the time difference um, because I can't be the black applicant who's an hour late. Like, that just can't happen. Um, So I, you know emailed them back hey i would love to come you know do, what do you have available um it happened to be like a i think a 10 30 time slot thank god it was on a saturday i'm like okay boom bam i'll make it work yeah laid out the clothes a week in advance i was like does this look scholarly enough <laughs> like is this professional enough wow. like okay how, now how do i do my hair do i wear my natural hair do i straighten it do mm. i pull it in a ponytail do i put it up in a bun because i'm black but i don't want to give the impression that i'm black and now unfit to be in your academic space and that's another thing that black women have to fight with all the time like yeah. do i wear my hair in a twist out do i wear my bantu knots can i go get dreads before i go to this interview or are you going to tell me i'm unfit not because of my academic ability but because you don't like how i look so went through all of that and then i go uh, up to louisville for the interview and they drilled me they asked me questions about my classroom experience, about my Auburn experience. You know, what do you know about educational theories? What do you know about, um, you know, putting educational theories into praxis? What do you know about teaching students with diverse abilities? What do you know about exceptionalities? And I'm just like, what? This is like a job interview. Yeah. Um, I understand why they needed to know that because again, you know, the pressures of a PhD program, it's, it's heavy. <laughs> and I've if heard. you're not really for the right reasons, why am I accepting you to take somebody else's spot and you're going to be gone next week or next month? You yeah, know, true, so true. they drilled me. And uh, at the end, they said, you know, you are the only person who's really invested in joining this program to be a teacher. Wow. Everyone's interested in joining to become an administrator, to become a principal, to become a provost. You're really the only person who's consistently said, I want to become the best teacher I can be. And they said, you know, we're not quite sure how you'll fit in with other people because they all want to be administrators and presidents and provosts and principals, but we'd love to have you. And I was like, thank you. So another opportunity, I'm, you know, I'm thanking them and shaking their hands. I went outside and, you know, I'm praying and thanking God and I get in my car and I drive back to Indiana and it's like, okay, phase three. It's like, you know, leveling up on the game. It's like, now you've defeated that monster. Yeah. Let's defeat this one. <laughs> <laughs> tools to go on to round three and it's like here we go so you know i don't have anybody in my immediate family who has a phd i don't have anyone in my immediate family who has gone for a phd so how do i now find the tools that i need to be successful in this new round starting over again again in a completely different space because now i'm going to school in kentucky uh Ooh, yeah you <laughs> um, private catholic school and you know she has a cross around her neck so they know i'm not catholic yeah. um uh, it, it was interesting but i learned so much about myself and i got to take classes uh for instance on you know how poverty affects students learning um on institutional um budgeting on on things like student success models those are the things that i really take from my doctorate program that i thoroughly enjoyed like we had some great discussions I read so much I'm a reader anyway but got to read some cool stuff and 
you know, you look up and three years later, it's like, you're done with classes. You ready to start this dissertation? And it's like, am I? Ooh. I've never written a dissertation. Am I ready to start this dissertation? So again, I reverted back to first gen and what first gens do. You got to find an ally. You got to read some books. You got to figure out what the expectations are and then try to meet those expectations. So my dissertation is on uh, the impact of mentorship and advising on first generation students, which <laughs> really is, you know, like a story of my life type of thing. Right. Um, but it's important to me because I want to see if other students are having the same experiences that I had, you know, now what, six years ago, 10 years ago, right? Whether those things are continuing um, or, you know, is there a statistical significance between the, the, the impact of a mentor on a first generation college student's life? Is there a statist statistical significance in the impact of a good advisor on a first gen college student's life? Um, and I'm excited to see what the findings show me. I'm excited to write it up. I'm excited to publish this dissertation and then be able to move into, you know, some articles that discuss what it's like being a first-gen student um, in today's world, especially with all of the civil unrest, um, racial tensions and things like that, that we're still going through today. Yeah, you, I, again, I got to catch my breath. Hold up. Your your story is so amazing. I I couldn't I I couldn't imagine having to go through some of those things. Just you know, being in these new environments, no experience, no one to really call on, no one to really rely on. You make it through, or you're about to make it through, and now I'm practicing all these things that I've learned. And I got this little piss ant sitting across from me, looking at the color of my skin, and thinking, you know just because you haven't heard of my school and because of the way I look, you think you're better than me, even though I'm the one standing in the front of this class and my name is on the door. Mm -hmm. I was good enough to get into this school. I was good enough to be offered a full ride for a master's and a PhD, but I'm not good enough to be a professor. Oh yeah, for sure. Wow. And then of course that's what they think. And then to once again, further your journey into education <laughs> again, <laughs> and pursue even more because you knew what you wanted to do. You knew yeah. what you wanted to do and you stuck with it. And you know, for real, for real, you know what you want to do when people sitting across from you regurgitate that and say, wow, you know, you kept saying. So that that's very big. And wow, you're awesome for that. <laughs> it's It's been interesting. So much so that, you know, once I started my doc, uh, doctoral program, I would have like um, different teachers and principals reach out to me and say, hey, do you want to consult? Like, do you want to come and share with us what we're not doing right in terms of how we're interacting with our students of color, how we're interacting Ooh. with students with disabilities? Can you come and consult with us about how we're interacting with our LGBTQIA students? Can mm. you come and consult and tell us what we're not doing right uh, with students who come from um, poverty situations? And I'm always like, I would love to. I would love to come and share with what I've learned because it goes back to what you said at the beginning. People who um, amass anything, um, who have the right character, will be willing to share what they've amassed with you to help you get there. It's not about me hoarding it. Like, what can I do <laughs> with my education and my experiences if I just keep it for Xavier? It's about sharing it. So 
and I shared this because it's funny to me, just a few days ago, um, someone from a community organization here asked me, you know, would you be willing to consult with us on issues of diversity? You know, we want to know about race. We want to know about disability. We want to know about um, LGBTQIA. We, you know, we need to know about poverty and how it influences people and trauma. And I'm like, wow, you're hitting on all of my wheelhouses. Yeah, I'd be happy to. And she says to me, so, you know, what's your honorarium? What do you charge? And I was like, I don't, I don't, I don't charge people to share what, what I know. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not charging you to share what I know about how you should be treating people, um, about how you should be intentional and equitable in the ways that you associate with people. I'm not charging you for that. Um, Now, if I am consulting in Kentucky or in South Carolina or in Florida, do they fly me out and pay for my flight? Yes. Mm -hmm. But if I'm coming down the street, like, girl, I'm going to just hop in the truck. I will meet you around the corner. (laughs) What time do you want me to be there? You know, I'd be happy to share. But that's always the assumption. You're amassing this knowledge. You're amassing these experiences because you just want to hoard them and keep them from yourself. But are you going to give back? Are you going to share with other people what you learn? It's like, I've been sharing what what I've learned my entire life. And no, I'm not going to charge you to share what I learned, you know, or what I know. Um, But you have to be willing to say, Yes, like you said, somebody's experiences and education just just happen to be more than mine. Mm -hmm. And if she's willing to share with me what she knows, I have to now be willing to listen. You're very noble because I would have (laughs) charged. Give it a loop. You asked, you know what I'm saying? No, that's very noble of you. Um, I I, I agree. I definitely... um, I've definitely been asked to do a couple things and help out with a couple things. And I, I share that mentality because it's like, why did I learn all this if I'm not going to use it for the greater good? Like, I shouldn't have to charge everybody for every single thing. Yeah, we know there's things that you should monetize about yourself, but you don't have to be a walking dollar sign. So, exactly. And that goes a long way because you never know who you're going to need. Hey, let me get this letter. Or, hey, I got a cousin that's coming down your way. Like, that can go a long, long, long way. Yeah. All right, so... I'm not going to keep you much longer. I only have a couple more questions. Everything okay. you've been saying is just, <laughs> wow, I'm gonna, I can't wait to listen back to this one in editing. You have no idea. I'm so inspired. I'm not working hard enough. All right. <laughs> so you've talked a lot about your parents, and one of the questions I, I asked you about are your greatest influences, and you spoke about them. But do you have a particular time or a particular story about your parents that truly helped give you that extra push? So many. Um, so again, just growing up in a household with, um, you know, older black parents, my, you know, my mother was 45 years old when I was born. So I didn't get that, you know, riding to school, listening to Ice Cube experience. I thought the riding to school, listening to Al Green, riding to school, listening to James Brown, riding to school, listening to Patti LaBelle, riding to school, listening to Kenny G. Uh, I got that experience. So my parents always talked to me like I was a mature adult. Their expectations for me were to always be mature, right? Even at six, seven, eight, like, mm-hmm. you know better than that. You, you know, but you know better. And it's like, I do, (laughs) I do know better. You're right. That was immature. Um, so a lot of my experiences with my parents were just like wise counsel, just always reminding me that is not what you should be doing. You know, that's not what you should be doing. So one of my, um, one of my experiences, I have so many, I can recall, um, 
with education, I'll say, came from um, an experience in high school. Now, again, I had just come from a preparatory um, sort of uh, laboratory school, K through eight, that was predominantly black. Our teachers were nationally certified, had won teaching awards. You know, we had professors from South Carolina State and Claflin teaching us like just black excellence, so to speak. Okay. We did have non-black students there, but you know, I would have maybe one or two non-black students in my classroom. Um, so we, again, we were never taught to think we were inferior. Going to a public high school uh, on the rural side of Orangeburg, that was completely flipped. I had to fight to be seen. I had to fight to get help, right? I had to fight to ask questions, to sit in the front of the classroom. It was, you know, it was different because now all of these people know each other and they've all gone to school together for years. I'm like, who are you, right? Mm -hmm. So one of my experiences um, after going to that high school was with my math teacher. And <laughs> I'll never forget, I'm not gonna cry. I'll never forget, uh, I'd studied my butt off for this test because I wanted to make, you know, a good impression. It's one of our first tests. Mm -hmm. um, and I, again, was sitting in the front of the classroom, but I've never been math-minded. I'm language arts, for sure. Um, I studied my tail off. I had been sitting at the dining room table night after night after night, quizzing myself, flashcards, repeating equations to myself, wow. like really forcing myself to learn it um, to the point that my dad would come around, you know, like come on, baby, it's time to go to bed. Like, you've been, come on, go to bed. You're going to do fine. I'm like, all right, you know, brush my teeth, take my shower, get to bed. So the morning comes, I'm all excited, you know, I'm ready. I'm looking at my flashcards. I take my tests, and I'm nervous. I'm the last student out the room. I said, okay, Miss so-and-so, I'm going to give her name away in mm -hmm. case she's still living. And I said, you know, you have a nice day. And she's like, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I go on to the next class and maybe an hour later she comes and gets me from class and I step out into the uh to the hallway and I'm like yes ma'am you know what yes ma'am did I do something wrong did I leave something in your classroom because again Xavier that's my thought I must have left something in, in your classroom she's like yeah um graded the test from this morning and it's obvious that you cheated huh. so during lunch, you're going to come back to my classroom and you're going to retake this. I, and I'm going to sit across from you and I'm going to watch you take it um, because it's obvious you cheated. So what? my first reaction was, this is a joke. Like, you don't really think I cheated because you know how hard I work. But then my second reaction was, there's no way you know how hard I work. You don't know anything about me. You haven't taken the time to get to know me. You haven't taken the time to ask me about myself or about my family life. You don't know that my parents, you know, make me do my homework before I go to bed. You don't know that I have a two-parent household. You don't know that my mom and my dad didn't go to college so that they really pushed me to get my work done before bed. You don't know that. Your assumption is what you've seen on TV, um, what yeah. you and your friends joke about, what, yeah. you know, you joke about uh, at the church, what you joke about, you know, at the bar at the barbershop in the beauty salons. What you know about me is not anything that you've actually taken the time as my teacher to get to know about me. So how would you know that I didn't cheat? How would you know that I'm actually just a good student and I really worked hard? So I asked her in, in between tears, well, why do you think I cheated? I studied. I said, I can show you my flashcards. And I don't know why I did that. She used the flashcards as the. Oh, that's what you were looking at. Yes. This is now the evidence that you were cheating. And I said, no, these are my flashcards. Look, here are my notes from class. And I'm crying profusely and I'm pulling stuff out of my book bag. And look, I got it. I didn't cheat. 
And she says, no, she said, you're going to come back to my, my, my classroom during lunch and you're going to retake this test. And if you don't retake it, I'm going to write you up and send you to the principal and you'll definitely be expelled. Just like that. What? She, turned, she turned away and walked away from me. No conversation. No, you know, well, you know, maybe you didn't, honey, but let's just take it to make sure I was, it was one of those situations where I was proven guilty. It wasn't an assumption of innocence. I literally probably was 15, maybe 14, if I'm being honest. Um, so I, you know, go to the bathroom. I'm crying profusely. I don't know why she's treating me this way. Again, I'm, you know, one of the only black kids in the class, but I didn't immediately associate it with race right. or with bigotry or prejudice. I really was like, why? I'm having a good day. I studied so hard for this. I thought I did well. Why is she treating me like that? Go back to my other classroom. My teachers asked me what's wrong. I refuse to say it. My classmates asked me what's wrong. I refuse to say it. Lunchtime comes. I knock on her door. And she's like, you can come in treated me like a criminal the entire time put your books but put your bag by the door put your books by the door you come over here and sit down what? she sits in front of me she's drinking you know her coke or whatever she was drinking and she's watching me literally everything i wrote on the paper she's like a hawk and i'm taking my tests and i'm you know i i feel pressured because yeah. you're reading it's, down my neck yeah it's not the same it's not the same it's not the and, same as it was the first time it's not right fair. i'm really I, pissed off right I now i'm sorry go ahead like i immediately understood the stakes like xavier if you score five or ten points less she is going to say that you definitely cheated right so you're going to have to score the same thing or she is going to think that you definitely cheated you definitely had help little black girl to make that score so i'm sitting there and as soon as it hit me that okay, I'm going to have to score the same thing because if I make anything lower, she's going to swear I'm, she, she's still going to report me. She's still going to think it's evidence of me cheating. I begin to cry. So I'm crying. I'm finishing up my test. I'm crying. I'm finishing up my test. I'm not speaking to her. I'm crying, finishing up. And she's just sitting there, just hawking, never asking, are you okay? Do you want a tissue? Nothing. I take the test and I kind of sit straight up and I took a deep breath and I said, I'm done. And she said, well, thank you. Just like that took my test, went to back to her desk. I grabbed my things, crying profusely. My day was ruined at that point. Right. Um, the next time I saw her, uh, I was very respectful. Um, but I went up to her after class and I said, you know, Miss So-and-so, did you have a chance to grade my quiz? I never heard from you that day. You know, what did you think? She says, oh, I guess it was just luck because you scored four points higher than you did the first time. <laughs> Never forget and I just looked at her and I said oh okay and she said next time you take your tests um, you'll be taking them in front of me um, so just 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 be prepared for that and she what? walked off no explanation no I'm sorry I shouldn't have ever accused you nothing and every time after that I don't know if my classmates know this or not <laughs> I'm not gonna cry every test after that that I took in class with my classmates during lunchtime at the beginning of lunch, I would have to go and retake it in her, in her classroom. You'd have to take every test twice. Yep. Okay. You're for the rest for the rest of that school year, the entire time that I was in her class, I would take the, whatever day that test was, I would have to take it with my classmates because I can't be blatantly racist. I would have to take it with my classmates she would come to me 
right before lunch and say, yeah, I, I need you to retake this. You made an 88. Yeah, I need you to retake this. You made a 93. Yeah, I'd like for you to retake this. You made a 90. And every time, I'm going to tell you how funny God is, every time I retook those tests, I always scored the same or higher. Never once did I score lower. You're and that has nothing to do with intelligence. That has everything to do with God. You're a professional, so you can't say it, but I'm going to say it. Whoever this lady is, I hope you're listening. You're a fucking asshole. <laughs> My and... classmates probably, they have to remember that. Because every lunch, wow. at the very beginning of lunch, I would be absent. And I would kind of walk in like 10 minutes late, 15 minutes late. Like there were some times I didn't even get to eat lunch because she would have me in her classroom taking this hard math test. She is a disgrace to education. This... You know, God is real. I say that because you're the second person, fellow Claflinite, that has told me about an experience where a teacher was just discouraging a student. And it's like, if you're in education and you're listening to this, understand something. I don't think you dream, I don't think you ever dream bigger in your life than when you're a kid. When you're a kid before all of these variables and a true understanding of what it is to be an adult and paying bills and all that comes in you think literally anything is possible anything so when someone who's older than you and wiser than you who's teaching you stands in front of you and presents themselves as a roadblock that is a killer you can you literally change the trajectory of that child's entire life with those mm -hmm. actions and either they're going to rise above which is rare because you're so yes. hurt you know Very. what i'm saying and that and a lot of that will depend on your home life like thank god my dad was the type hey what's going on my dad was a talker he made me talk about everything so i was very uh communicative is that a word don't answer yes. that okay mm -hmm. oh. <laughs> but i that just pisses me off so bad because i've had so many situations where my, with my kids and i I just love my kids, and I remember that you're you are a kid, and if they did cheat, I'm gonna say, well, why'd you cheat? What happened, man? You didn't study. All right, look, mm -hmm. I'm gonna give you a couple days. Go study. You know what I'm saying? Just don't Retake make it a habit. Test. Yeah, because yeah. I'm. We all that's, cheated sometimes. That's sometime. being a teacher. That's being yeah. a teacher. That's be, being in education for the right reason to educate me. Being in education and literally, as you you said, presenting yourself as a roadblock. I am now the guard in the tower mm -hmm. and I'm going to keep you from passing this class because I know if you pass this class, you get to go into the next class. So mm -hmm. if I go out of my way to accuse you, to put this emotional trauma and strain in your life and associate that with coming to class, can you imagine how nervous I would be going into that class every day? Yeah. Can you imagine like, you know, she's asking, well, who knows the answer to this? I got the answer, but I'm not speaking up. I'm not speaking up. Like, I know what you oh, think never. of me. Never. And it, I would dread going to that class. And I, again, I have classmates to this day who, if they really thought about it, they would be like, you know what? She's right. That lady did treat her wrong. In class. That lady did talk to her crazy. That lady did. She was never in lunch the first 15, 20 minutes. That's crazy. They, If they thought about it, they could pinpoint who it was and, and what, what was going on. But again, I was in a new school. I didn't know these administrators. I didn't know these teachers. I'm a new student. Um, and this woman decided that she was going to be the bully in my story. She was going to be the antagonist in my story. 
and she tried hard. I don't know if it's something that I said. I don't know if it's just, you know, the fact that I'm a, I was a dark skinned black girl from, you know, a rural city and she decided, well, you ain't going to be nothing. So I'm going to help you out. But she did everything in her power, like literally stood in the hallway and told me, I know you cheated. So from here on out, be coming and retaking these tests. And if you don't retake them, I'll write you up for all the ones that you cheated on. And then you, you, you'll get expelled and walked away like, eh, it's just, just another one who will get expelled. So what? So that's the story that for me resonates so much when I think about my parents, because I remember going to my dad in tears that same day, the first time I had to retake the test Mm -hmm. and saying to him, daddy, I don't know what I did to this lady. I don't know why she's singling me out. I don't know why she thinks I cheated, but for some reason she doesn't think that I'm capable of making the grade that I made. And he said to me, I'll never forget. He said, not only will you retake the test, but God's going to make it so, again, this is a man with limited education. God going to make it so that you surprise her. Mm. He says, you retake, you retook it? I said, yeah, I, re- I retook it. He said, okay. He said, and you, you didn't give her no trouble. I said, no, I didn't give her no trouble. Okay. So what you going to do is you find out what the score was and you going to retake it and keep retaking them. And God going to make it so. God going to make it so that you surprise her and you surprise all of them. And that is what rings in my head when I'm fighting with dissertation, when I'm fighting, um, you know, with PhD stuff, when I was fighting with master stuff, when I was fighting at Claflin, God going to make it so. God going to make it so. God going to make it so. You going to surprise them. God going to make it so. So that's what I always think back to. God, God is going to make it so. You know, you feel like this is insurmountable. You feel like this is a, a burden. Like I was crushed you know um but god gonna make it so don't don't dwell on this so that's one of the things that again you know my dad didn't have the education to be able to help me study for the test but he had the faith to be able to give his little girl what she needed in that moment to not feel so defeated with having to go in and retake tests every week (laughs) uh I'm going to go punch something after this interview. Okay. No, 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 not at all. I just... It was good motivation. Terrible story. You know, <laughs> terrible, ter- terrible, terrible, terrible. I I cried about that thing. That thing hurt my heart because I think that's when I first realized that adults, teachers could be so prejudiced. Yeah. Um, because again, before that, I had never had that experience. So when I realized that she was using her position as a teacher to institutionalize her racism... I said, well, what can you do? What what can I do? You're the only one to teach this class. Yeah. I have damn. to go through you. It's a small school. I can't go to someone. I have to go through you to get to where I want to be. So that's the story I think of. And, of course, she continued to be nasty towards me the rest of the year. Yeah. Um, the next year, you know, I moved on to a new class and a new class and a new class. And um, my senior year, I had the option to take AP math. Um, it was crazy. It's just crazy how God works. And when I got ready to graduate, um, to go to Claflin, I got a scholarship for English, for students who wanted to be English educators. Mm -hmm. And I was the only senior who wanted to be an English educator. And they gave me this big old scholarship. And I just remember looking down at her. I just remember walking up on the stage, getting that big scholarship to go to school for English education. I'm the only senior who wants to be an English teacher. Like, how appropriate. And you're just sitting there looking like, 
damn it, I ain't do a good enough job keeping her from graduation. Like, mm, I won. And it was just just so appropriate in that moment. And But she's honestly the reason why I didn't go back to my high school for years after that because I just, I associated that place with a lot of yeah. trauma. Um, even though my other teachers were great, I had great teachers like Miss Street and again, Dr. Smith, Miss um, Smith was fantastic. Our superintendent at the time was fantastic, uh, Dr. Jenkins. Um, a black woman, but I never shared with them what she was doing. I didn't want to be the black girl who was pulling the race card. You know, that's what they say when they're not an ally and they don't understand how yeah. racism impacts people of color. They say, oh, you playing the race card. I didn't want to share that. So I just kept it to myself and I did what my daddy told me and I took the test. Wow. You're, you're okay. You have to write a book. You have to. <laughs> You don't have to do it right now. You got time. Definitely not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got time. Your story, your story has to be told. I'm glad you joined me to give us a synopsis. So those of you listening, again, y'all know why I do this. I do this so that people can share their life experiences with you so that you can receive the motivation that you need to achieve whatever it is that you're trying to achieve in life. So with that, I'm going to ask my final question that I ask all my guests. Drum roll. So... So for our listeners, especially those who are first gen like you, they might be in middle school listening to this. They might be at high school listening to this. They may be in college. They may be in grad school. They, be, they may be working on their PhD. You've already given tons and tons and tons and tons of words of wisdom, words of wisdom. But I'm going to ask you to give, just, just put some icing on top of that cake for them. Okay. Um, I would say to anyone listening who may be the first in their families to accomplish any big thing, like maybe, as you said, it's I'm the first person in my family to uh, make it to this step, or maybe you're the first person in your family to accomplish this professional goal or to want to accomplish this professional goal, right? You're the first at something. Um, I would say my words of wisdom would be, be the best first you can be. Um, because you have to remember that once you bypass this hurdle there will be your children other people's children your nieces your nephews your godchildren your students kids in the community neighbors in the community who will then come to you for your advice your expertise what happened to you so be the best first you can be and by that i mean be in the moment pay attention to what's going on pay attention to all the people who helped you pay attention to all the all the pitfalls along the way so that you can then help someone else to bypass those things, right? You don't, being a good, being the best first you can be, being a good first is not, yeah, I made it. Okay, well, I need help. I don't know what you're gonna do. <laughs> you better struggle like I struggled. That's not being a good first. Mm. Being a good first is I paid attention to the pitfalls. I paid attention to the hurdles. I jumped, I maneuvered, I made it through. Now, let me tell you exactly what to do in this maze to make it out safely. That's being a good first. So now someone else can be the second, so that someone else can be the third, so that someone else can be the fourth. You know, if we're trying to build um, a community where, you know, one day we can look up and say, there are no more firsts, 
Mm-hmm. We have sec- we have two doctors in this family now. We have two lawyers in this family. We got two realtors in this family. We got two teachers in this family. You know, to be able to look up and say, you know, we got two entrepreneurs in our family now. You know, in, in our community, we have 12 professors. We have 12 this, 12 superintendents. Right. To get to that point, we have to stop being selfish. And we have to be good first at whatever we're doing. So, again, whether you're being you know, the first person in your family to go to college or the first person in your family to go get a master's degree, a EDD or a PhD. If you're the first person in your family to go get a medical degree or a Juris Doctor. Listen, be a great first. Remember the pitfalls. Remember who helped. Remember how it felt. And then once you get to the finish line, don't forget to help the person who wants to be second. And then help the person who wants to be third. And then help the person who wants to be fourth. Because only in doing that sort of reciprocal help can we get our community to a place where eventually no one will have to walk that journey that very lonely journey of being the first they will be the fifth the sixth the seventh and they'll be able to call on you and you'll you know be an old woman or man you know in your rocking chair i don't know why i have that image of rocking chairs (laughs) you know telling them i remember when you know i was a first gen let me tell you what i did but guess what you'll be able to share it and it'll be It'll be worth it. Um, it will be uh, Im- impactful to the community. And most importantly, it'll be significant to that person that you cared enough to share a little piece of your journey. Wow. Um, I'm going to I'm gonna add a little bit to this. And this is for the people that I addressed at the very beginning who down education. The educational system will always be there. And we can't change it unless we're a part of it. We got to go through it. We got to see it. We have to experience it. And we have to use that same education to make the change and be the example of change that we want to see. It's necessary. You know, yeah, school's not for everybody, whatever. But stop downing and trashing school, y'all. Sorry, I had to add that. I'm passionate about that. No, yeah, I agree. It's it's hard. It's <laughs> it's hard to tell young people, you know, hey, if you don't want to go to college, go find a trade. You know, benefit your community in that way because they see social media. They see the lures of quick money, fast money yep. over the promise of an education, the promise of being a, a, a welder, right? The promise yeah. of being a factory worker. Why would I want to do that when I can go make this quick money? But that res- that reciprocal nature of giving back to your community and helping somebody else accomplish his her their dreams because you did i i can't i can't compare that feeling i i can't explain to you what it feels like to you know watch another little black girl white girl brown girl accomplish her goals because i poured a little bit of something into her um that's something I can't I can't ever share with people what that feels like. So that's why whatever free time I do have, and it is limited, I try to give it back to kids. I give it back to mentoring kids. We established a youth organization here two years ago. It's like a Saturday academy. It's called the DNA Lab. Um, and what we do is we teach kids about uh, black culture, about self-esteem, about self-care, um, topics like colorism, topics like, you know, why we are so fascinated with jewelry and gold from Africa to today. We talk about things like, um, uh, you know, call and response uh, and why that's so so much a part of the African-American journey. Um, we do a lot of teaching and preaching to them to love themselves and to not get so caught up in um, the prejudice that they see in the world because we know it's necessary, but I give a lot of my time to that because again, it's all about giving to somebody else. It's all about helping somebody else. Queen, 
thank you for joining me. You, <laughs> thank you for joining me. You know what's funny? She said before I started recording, she said if we would have did this when I was originally trying to do it, it just wouldn't have been the same. And you're right. A lot happened in that <laughs> relatively short amount of time. A lot. Yeah, I literally had just left Alabama. I just left Auburn. So all of these new things that I can talk to you about <laughs> would have just been silence. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you once again for joining us. Um, we definitely you. appreciate you. I know that your words have definitely inspired me. Um, prayerfully, they have inspired one of our listeners. And I want to shout out the listeners once again. Thank you all for listening. Y'all already know where you can find us from my experience podcast on Facebook, FME underscore podcast on Instagram. If you have any questions, if you want to ask any questions, follow up questions to guests, if you have a recommended guest, you can hit us up, FME podcast one at gmail.com. Um, yeah, this was amazing. <laughs> thank you I'm, I'm happy it went well <laughs> I, I had happy, no I hope doubt it was fruitful it, it definitely was so all right y'all we'll catch y'all next time